welcome to the Black Dog Institute Expert Insights podcast series. Black Dog Institute is a global pioneer in the identification, prevention and treatment of mental illness and the promotion of well-being. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at the Black Dog Institute on the 27th of April, 2016. The discussion topic is bipolar, borderline or both. Our panel members are Dr. Adam Bayes, Associate Lecturer at the School of Psychiatry, University of New South Wales. Tony Merritt, Clinical Psychologist. And Dr. Jan Allman, General Practitioner and Black Dog Institute General Practice Consultant. Our Chairperson for the evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. So to start with, I think what's going to be important is just kind of laying down the foundation for our discussion tonight. Before we look at differentiating the two conditions, we might start, first of all, by talking about the key features of each of the conditions. So I might turn to you first, Adam, to talk about the key features of bipolar disorder. What are the things that we look for when we're making that diagnosis? Okay, uh, right. So I guess, uh, I mean, most of you in the audience would, would have heard about bipolar disorder or know something about it. Um, I guess historically, you know, it's called manic depression. Um, and I guess it has these, these two features of major depressive episodes and uh, either hypomanic or manic episodes. So, I mean, one way to start would be to, to classify bipolar disorder as either type 1 bipolar disorder which has um, major depressive episodes and manic episodes. Uh, and type 2 bipolar disorder, I guess, is, um, there's increased awareness of type 2 bipolar disorder, though it's not without controversy, um, where the, there's major depressive episodes but hypomanic episodes, which means a small manic episode in essence. Uh, and then, you know, others have subtyped into bipolar 3 disorder, for example, where uh, if, if a patient's put on an antidepressant and they become high, um, this has been labelled as type 3. And it's actually, you know, one of the uh, big plays in this area is uh, Hagolpa Kiskel, who's sort of subtyped even further. Um, but I guess uh, the predominant subtypes would be type 1 and type two. Um, I, the DSM, uh, you know, has certain criteria about what makes a manic episode versus a hypomanic episode. I guess in DSM, which is just one classification, um, there's this concept that it's just, the, the symptoms are severe, they've gone on for seven or more days. Uh, if you're hospitalised, then you're automatically, it's called mania. Uh, and in about two-thirds of patients, there'll be psychotic features. So these could be uh, delusions or hallucinations um, which occur during the manic episode. Uh, and then hypomania, uh, which is in type, type 2, uh, there cannot be psychotic features, cannot be hospitalisation, and generally it's considered that the function of the person is not impaired. So, you know, many patients might say, you know, they, they're very productive, at, they're more productive at work, uh, that they, you know, they, they can do more. Um, so it's an interesting feature of the illness, I guess, in that 
in, in some patients, they might see it actually as, a, as not a deficit, but as a, a positive thing, though it's not always positive. Uh, and then, of course, the depressive episodes. Um, I probably don't need to go into the... I think everyone's familiar with um, uh, what constitutes major depression. So I guess that, that's the general uh, sort of psychiatric formulation, if you like, um, of, of bipolar disorder. So when someone's in front of you, what yeah. makes you sort of prick up your ears and go, oh, could this be bipolar disorder? Sure. Well, look, I had a, I had a patient yesterday. Uh, you know, he, uh, he was bounded up the stairs, um, talking a million miles an hour, making lots of plans. Had made all these purchases, uh, you know, was talking to strangers on the street, expansive. Uh, in that instance, uh, you know, that's... It's a bit unmissable, isn't it's it? It's a bit unmissable when, it, when it's clear-cut like that. And it doesn't happen that often, I must say, you know. Um, occasionally someone... I mean, in the hospital, I guess, you would see that, see that more. Um, you know, the police are going to drag someone in that's um, manic and psychotic. But in private practice, I guess you wouldn't necessarily come across it as frequently. Uh, and, of course, if, if there's a history of prior periods of being very down for an extended period of time, being unable to get out of bed, um, you know, a history of mood episodes, other things would be a family history of bipolar disorder. So it's a very heritable condition. So it's, it's, it's very common. Uh, not, it's not necessary to have a family history, but obviously if there's a family history there, um, you know, my ears are pricking up a bit more, could this be bipolar disorder? Uh, but if you look at D DSM, you know, doesn't... DSM being, and we can probably go into it a bit later on, but just gives you a list of symptoms and it doesn't sort of go into much more sort of depth about uh, family history and things like that, which are important. I mean, I guess the other thing, I was just going to add a couple of things that Adam said about, about bipolar as well, is that in, in, there's a couple of things in DSM. One is that the, in DSM for type 2 bipolar, the episode length that they specify is, is about four days. Um, but a lot of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but a lot of the research seems to indicate that actually it probably is not the appropriate period and, and probably it's more reasonable to look at an episode of around two days. Would that be kind of reasonable? I think, yeah, I mean, the, the DSM um, just basically just pulled four days out of the air, really. Yeah, right. It's very yeah. arbitrary. It's not really supported by um, empirical studies. Yeah, right. Uh, and there, there is more literature coming out to suggest that uh, yeah, two days might be more appropriate or could even be briefer, which gets controversial there. Yeah. The other issue is hospitalisation as a criteria. And now that really depends where you live and how easy it is to get into hospital, doesn't it? So in our system, it's mm. really not appropriate to use hospitalisation as a major criterion for making the diagnosis. And usually what happens when people present with bipolar disorder, particularly type 2, they're usually presenting with depression you know, and so it's kind of a really key thing to always ask those kind of questions about elevated mood because otherwise you could be missing some, some quite important stuff. Can I just 
take the opportunity to tell a story that contrasts with your story about mm -hmm. mania because I think that the story I'm going to tell says a little bit more about how, how hypomania presents to general practice. Mm -hmm. I've got a girl that I know to be bipolar mm -hmm. as well. She also has a severe eating disorder and I have an interest that I forgot to tell you about in eating disorders. And I see her for medical monitoring around her eating disorder and some counselling. And she's been not so good lately. And but she came in a few weeks ago and she was had a similar demeanour to usual. And I said something that, about something I'd heard on the radio just in the warm-up conversation. And she said, oh, what a coincidence that you're talking about that. I said to her, is it? She said, yes, all these coincidences have been happening this week. Now, are you hearing the clues? Now, that's the kind of thing mm. that I see. I said to her, what do you make of a period where lots of coincidences happen? Has that happened to you before? And she looked at me sheepishly and said, yeah, I know what you mean. She's on an upswing and we mm -hmm. caught her on the upswing, mm -hmm. increased her mood stabiliser and were able to nip that upswing in the bud. And that's more the subtle kind of stuff yeah. that, that you tend to see when people are kind of seeing you routinely, not seeing you as a psychiatrist mm -hmm. specifically for psychiatric issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a great story as well about a, um, a and this is a public thing because I read it so I'm not, about a, a golfer and he used to talk about when he had a, a hypomanic episode that he could look look down the fairway, you know, 200 metres down the fairway and he could see exactly where the ball was going to land and he could see the blades of grass and how the ball would deflect off the blade, you know, like the let, now whether that's accurate or not, but that sort of sense of the, the acuity of his senses was, was, was quite amazing. And you can see how that's quite compelling to kind of want to be, to want to be in that kind of place, you know. Tony, can you perhaps run through for us some of the key features of borderline personality disorder that we could perhaps recognise in our own practices? So, in, in, in essence, um, the, um, uh, the criteria for borderline personality disorder for a DSM point of view is a very unreliable, you know, as, as they are for most personality disorders. And, you know, we, we were talking before about how, you know, you can see someone who's this very lovely, kind of warm, kind of friendly, kind of ingratiating individual who, you know, does everything you'd ask them to do in therapy and is really compliant, but then on a Friday night goes out and gets completely hammered and wakes up on Sunday morning in some stranger's house, you know, having no idea what went on all weekend. Or you can have an incredibly angry, you know, difficult to engage, challenging individual who doesn't want to be there, and, you know, and yet they've got the same diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So, so as, a, as a general approach, it's, it's, not a, it's not a very reliable diagnosis and there are 256 different symptom combinations for borderline personality disorder. So it, so it is quite complicated, I think, to look at from a diagnostic point of view. If you look at the, probably the two kind of major theoretical approaches to borderline personality disorder, the sort of the more, I guess, sort of psychodynamic self type people, they would say that it's a disruption of self in some kind of way. Um, whereas if you look at the kind of the behavioural approach, the sort of martial items, they would say it's more an issue of emotional regulation. And I, I, prob I come from more that, that, that kind of camp. And interestingly enough, they both agree that the, that the issues are the same, there are problems. It's just that martial item would say, well, if you work on emotion regulation, then the sense of self grows and changes. And the psychodynamic people would say, if you work on the sense of self, emotion regulation occurs. So, so it's just, it's really a difference in the, in the direction of causation. So, but the, typically the kind of things that you see really is a, is a, you know, a pattern of un, unstable relationships um, is obviously one. Um, from a sort of DBT behavioural point of view, you see um, a great degree of emotional sensitivity. 
Um, so people with borderline personality disorder just seem to feel things more um, than other people. Um, and, and that puts them um, in a very kind of rich emotional world. Um, but if they've grown up with the wrong type of upbringing, and I'll talk about what that means in a minute, that also puts them at great risk of, of developing, you know, significant emotional problems. So, so the kind of stuff I'm looking for is, is this person someone who reports a history of very strong emotions? You know, is that, is that, that one part of it? And they may put those emotions away in various ways. And have they grown up with a history of invalidation? And that's kind of the second part of the, the DBT model, if you like. And by invalidation, um, that, the, the classic invalidation is being sexually abused, of course. Um, but there are a large number of people with borderline personalities who don't report history of, of sexual abuse. But if you look at their upbringing, what they do talk about is they talk about a history of, of feeling invalidated in some kind of way, a feeling that their kind of inner world or their emotional world hasn't been supported um, in, in, in many different ways. And again, Marshall Einem identifies lots of different kind of versions of that. So I might get you to start this one off for us, Jan, but you'll probably all have comments to make on it. Why is it so challenging for us to make this distinction between bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder? Because we only spend a little bit of time with people and we don't get to experience their emotional ups and downs. That's one of the reasons. We only hear what's been reported to us rather than um, be able to observe for ourselves. And both conditions are about emotional ups and downs. In the case of borderline people, it's emotional volatility. And in the case of bipolar people, it's simply emotions that go up, stay up, go down, go... And it's easily misinterpreted one for the other. And the other thing that I think happens is that... that um, uh, as Adam said, bipolar disorder runs in families. If you're a child with a bipolar parent, then you may experience invalidation and therefore be more likely to have borderline traits on top of the bipolar disorder that you may have inherited as well. So it becomes an issue of, of both conditions existing in the same person uh, and therefore that makes it very difficult to work out what's going on. Following on for that, I might check with Adam. Yeah. The, the idea of the two co-occurring, mm -hmm. how, how common is that and what are the ramifications of them coming together rather than one at a time? Yeah, well, I, I just looked up a meta-analysis before I came <laughs> in. Uh, and, uh, it's funny you should ask and, that. Very uh, right. uh, 2016, um, 42 studies uh, which uh, looked at both conditions and essentially it was... I mean, the stats are uh, borderline personality disorder occurs in bipolar disorder 21.6% of the time, so about one in five. And the converse was 18.5%, so it's actually almost one in five. So essentially, if you see someone with bipolar disorder, 20% chance that they have borderline and vice versa. So that's, that's pretty high. I don't know what other members of the panel think about that figure. I mean, I guess I did some, in my research, um, we, we came up with a similar figure. Uh, but I suppose there are issues with this meta-analysis in terms of DSM might inflate the comorbidity because many of the symptoms are the same in both disorders. So if you use strict DSM, diagnosis, it probably gives a higher comorbidity than actually is occurring. But certainly, I, I think um, uh, 
there's strong evidence to suggest that the, the two disorders can co-occur. Um, and, uh, or, um, as you said, there might be bipolar disorder with borderline traits. So it might not be the full borderline personality disorder, but there's borderline features there as well. I'm quite surprised by that. I, I said, we were talking about this earlier on, that that, that figure's so high. Um, because it's not, in the, in the people that I see, it's not, I don't see a lot of that. But I might be overlooking, I mean, I'm quite happy to see, thinking that I could be overlooking and over-assessing the, the yeah. because I'm interested in the borderline. But the other thing is, I guess, my, my sense is that because borderline is such an unreliable diagnosis, you know, you've got one variable which can have quite a lot of range to what it means, and so I wonder. But anyway, what, what were you... I was going to say, I think clinically I, I, I would agree that does seem yeah, quite right. high. Yeah. Um, I, I would have thought the figure was lower than that. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I think the issue is that, uh, you know, there can be misdiagnoses either way. So a bipolar patient can be misdiagnosed borderline and vice versa. And I think that maybe we can talk about that later. But, well, uh, maybe let's go to that then. What, what are the things that we look for that are useful, effective distinguishers? between the two? What are the things we should look at? So do you want to kick that off, Tony? Oh, well, I, I mean, I was, we, again, Adam and I were talking about this outside. Like, from a clinical psychologist's point of view, we, we're, we're a little bit reticent with diagnostic stuff, I think, you know? And um, we much, you know, much prefer to kind of assess the problem and look at the functions of the behaviours and, and those sorts of things. And so I, I'm, I, I stand back a bit from diagnosis, but I actually think this is one area where it actually is quite important, you know, because the, the, for a start, the difference in medications that are indicated in, in the two are quite, are quite different. And secondly, I think that what you would do from a treatment point of view, can, even though there's evidence for DBT for bipolar, like in lots of ways, the kind of treatment program that you would put together for bipolar disorder is probably quite different from the type you put together for, for BPD. And I, I think that is a really important distinction, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm a psychiatrist, so I I'm all about diagnosis. Um, but uh, but I guess you know from a from a psychiatric perspective, um, you know, I would consider bipolar disorder to you know to be a it's a mental illness. It's more of a it's I want to use the word disease if you like. You know that it's. Um, it, it's it's genetic. It's strongly heritable. Um, it's a biological condition. Uh, personality, and, and it usually has a distinct onset. I think is one, one thing. So that a, a patient, you know, they seem to be developmental, developing normally. Um, you know, they they're hitting all their goals, and then all of a sudden, bam, they're struck down with either a depressive episode or a a manic or hypomanic episode. So it seems to be this discontinuity or a trend break um, versus a personality disorder, which is more enduring. You know, it's more part of, I guess, I guess I'd conceptualise it as it's, it's sort of part of the, the makeup of the, the individual. And it stems from, from chi childhood through to adolescence and it, it's more an enduring uh, condition. And I think it's important, I guess, to make the distinction because, you know, there are very good treatments for bipolar disorder. There's evidence that mood stabilisers uh, work, um, you know, lithium being the gold standard uh, and other, you know, medications that can reduce the, the incidence of further depressive or manic episodes. Um, 
versus, and, and psychological treatment would also be important for bipolar disorder, but it's, I would see it as adjunctive. So that getting the mood more stable with medication and then seeing what's, what else is left. I mean, a lot of that stuff might resolve, you know, if the mood's under control. Versus for borderline personality disorder, there's not a lot of evidence that medications are particularly effective. Lithium, there's no evidence that lithium's effective. Some of the other um, medications, there's not much data, but there's some evidence maybe that they could be useful for some symptom domains, like anger and impulsivity. But predominantly, it's a psychological approach, like DBT, as you've mentioned, or mineralization-based therapy. That'd be where I would start. And then using maybe little doses of medications uh, as, an, as an adjunct. Um, of course, with, with borderline personality disorder, there is a high um, incidence of depressive episodes as well. So I, I guess that's something that we can't... Sometimes, you know, everyone's so focused on the borderline personality disorder, but they've got a melancholic depression. Mm. They might need ECT. Uh, so I think it's important to, to always have that in the back of your mind that there might be a, a comorbid depressive episode which borderline patients are more prone to having. I don't think there's any absolutely clear way to make that distinction, but there are certain things that are indicators and one of them is that onset history and I think that's really important. Another one is the pattern of illness. Um, borderline personality disorder pattern tends to be persistent throughout the life, whereas people with bipolar disorder have periods of relative normality in between their episodes of, of highs and lows, which I think is an important distinction. And the other thing that can sometimes become apparent as you proceed with treatment is response to antidepressant medications. And people with borderline personality disorder who are also depressed, not those who aren't depressed, will respond to antidepressant medications, whereas people with bipolar disorder will tend to go a little um, out of control in, with antidepressant medications if they're not covered by mood stabilisers. So that's another clinical distinction that you can make as, as time goes by. Um, oh, I, I suppose a couple of other things. In, in uh, bipolar disorder, it's usually mood goes up and down, you know, whereas in borderline personality disorder, shame may go up and down, um, but joy goes up and down and love goes up and down and anger goes up and down as well. So, so there's a much more of a kind of range of emotions, if you like, that tend to move. And, 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 the, and the duration, I think, you know, in, in borderline, pers people often say, oh, you know, I'm, I think I'm bipolar. And you say, why? And they say, well, because one morning, in the morning I'm feeling down, in the afternoon I'm feeling up. But actually, you know, from a diagnostic point of view, we've said those episodes, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, two days for a, for a mood change. And often if you see people with bipolar disorder, then those mood um, episodes are much longer than that, you know? Um, and then people might say, oh, well, actually, I think I've got a rapid cycling. But that's not even what rapid cycling means, you know? Rapid cycling is more than four episodes in a year. So people have this perception that if their mood's going like this, then they're probably bipolar. But actually, if their mood's going like that, it's more of a, a borderline type thing. Um, and the other thing is, is that the triggers. So in, in borderline personality disorder, a lot of the triggers are very interpersonal. Yeah I, yeah, I agree with the, the quality of the relationships as well. You know, even, you know, many patients with quite severe bipolar disorder, 
not all, but many can still manage, you know, still, they can be married or have a partner, they can hold down work, um, often because their, their inter-episode functioning is quite good, or their, their, their relationships when they're well are quite solid. In borderline personality disorder, they're, rarely, they're in such a state of flux that they often their interpersonal relationships are a bit all over the place. Well, that's what I'd like to ask Adam about, actually. About, that's one of the things, if you've got someone in a, a mixed state mm-hmm. versus a borderline type. I guess one area where um, it's diagnostically unclear is, I mean, I guess if you look at DSM and you look at hypomania or mania, it should be fairly, if you can identify that in, in a patient, then it should be fairly easy to just say, well, they've got bipolar disorder. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, as we know, a lot of manic or hypomanic episodes, you know, most people aren't euphoric, actually, in, if they're hypomanic or manic. Often they're irritable and they're angry. You know, they're not, they're not the euphoric manic patient's pretty rare, unfortunately. Uh, so it's m- more irritability is what I see. You know, you see the really irritable. And so cross-sectionally, I guess, um, they might appear, you know, a bit, a bit borderline. Yeah. So basically a mixed episode is where you have features of both highs and lows thrown in together. Uh, now, and, and that can occur in, in bipolar disorder. So you meet criteria for, sort of, for both. And again, that, that can present confusion. Uh, and again, they might, the patient might come across as being more personality disordered on a cross-sectional interview. But if you look at it longitudinally, they haven't been in a mixed state since they were 12, yes. like the person with borderline personality exactly, disorder. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, typically, I mean, in the research I did, you know, I'd, I'd sort of say, well, how long have you been feeling down or for? And many borderline patients say, oh, it's since my whole I was life. born. Or since I was five was a common one, actually. Since I was five years old, feeling down. But generally, bipolar patients will say, you know, they childhood was fine, teens were fine, and was that late adolescent, early adulthood where they had that, that first mood episode. And again, it, came, it sort of comes out of the blue, and it's quite different to the way they were functioning previously. And it's quite, often quite a discreet episode which you can pin down. At what age is it possible for young people to start DBT? Would it be appropriate in around mid-adolescence? Um, there's a number of good um, treatment manuals for um, adolescent DBT treatment manuals around. Um, Sutherland Community Mental Health used to run uh, an adolescent DBT program. I don't know if they still do. Um, they're a little bit difficult to come across. Um, Headspace sometimes have a go at running... Some of the Headspaces have had a go at running adolescent DBT programs. And there's, there's some pretty good evidence for it, I think. It's difficult to... We run a, did run a DBT program in our practice until about six months ago, and we usually didn't put adolescents in that just for, because they, they don't mix very, very well with adults. I might just ask the panel... Personality is something that evolves. At, at what age can we say someone has a personality disorder? Like, at what point is the personality formed enough for us to be able to make that? Um... I mean, I, yeah, I was going to. I was going to add a proviso. I think that uh, I think we should be cautious about labelling, you know, young teens with borderline personality disorder. I mean, any personality disorder. Any personality, because I think you know the brain is still developing. Uh, and I guess, you know, there could be sort of immature yeah. 
behaviours that, you know, that will, the person will develop better coping strategies and mature a bit or, you know, and they might not have a borderline personality disorder. Having said that, I mean, I've seen, I remember when I did my child psychiatry exam, there were some patients that came through and you thought, well, you know, that yeah. they seemed to be heading yeah. in one yeah. direction. Yeah. And, but it was usually fairly, you know, in your face and you're sort of thinking, okay, it mm. seems inevitable. But if it was more sort of soft symptoms, I guess, I think you can, I think you can think about it. And, and I think these, these measures like mindfulness and stuff, I mean, that's not going to do any harm. No, that's right. You know, um, and I think that everybody, you know, really should be yeah. learning those skills. Exactly. But, mm-hmm. but I think labelling could be problematic in the sense that, as Tony has said, once it goes down in the medical file, uh, when, you, when you turn up to the emergency department, that's going to be the... Why um, call it DBT? DBT, after all, is just a packaging of skills learning. And at that sort of age, and much younger mm-hmm. for that matter, you can just call it emotional skills yeah. strategies yeah. or resilience training yeah. or whatever. Right. You don't have to call it DBT. It can be the same thing. That's a very good point. But it's resilience yeah. training mm-hmm. when it's children and adolescents. It's a very good point. And, and they are, in essence, the DBT skills are life skills, you know. So mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a very good point. How do you distinguish a primary substance use disorder in people with bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder, as opposed to the substance use being secondary to one of these disorders. So you're saying <laughs> if they're using illicit drugs, you mean or alcohol? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very difficult, you know, because I think the comorbidity is so high uh, with bipolar disorder and alcohol and drug use, um, and also with borderline personality disorder, because you know, bipolar patients, if they're on a high they often want to pep themselves up even higher, you know, and, uh, and they'll be disinhibited and, you know, they'll go out all weekend and they've got en- endless energy and they don't care about money and so, you know, or if they're down, again, they might self-medicate. I think it's really hard. I mean, I, I haven't found a, a straightforward way um, other than if I, if I get a sense that I've, I feel that there is a bipolar disorder, treat it with a mood stabiliser and often a lot of that the drug use settles down. That's what I've found. Um, yeah, and I, I think uh, just to, going back to the borderline um, point, and, I mean, there's a lot of high comorbid drug and alcohol use as well, often to sort of regulate emotions to, um, uh, and, you know, more. So I think it's a, it's a fraught area. I, I just think, I, I think the way I approach it is, um, I mean, look, occasionally I've seen patients where it seems to be clear they've got a, a huge substance abuse problem and that's actually the primary thing that's, and the mood yes. sort of thing is secondary. I have seen that, you know. I mean, if they're using uh, crystal meth, uh, if they're injecting crystal meth and then they're awake for a week and they're running, you know, I mean, that... Then they, you know, they might have to go to a drug and alcohol rehab and get that sorted out. They still could have a bipolar disorder, but sometimes you think it's more drugs. Um, but other times, I, I just sort of treat the bipolar disorder, and as I said, often that drug use settles in, settles down if they're compliant with, with treatment. The other thing I was just thinking about, because you know, I worked in a pain clinic for a long time, was that you'd see like a reasonable number of people who were drug seeking in a pain clinic who had borderline personality disorder, you know, but we didn't see so much of that with bipolar disorder. I don't know whether there's anything in that, you know. 
What is the correlation between self-harm and borderline personality disorder? I think it's been the case for 10 or 15 years now. Self-harm is epidemic amongst mm. young people who aren't necessarily personality Absolutely. disordered. Okay. It is like tattooing yeah. or, or like smoking used to be for yeah, us. It's, it's a statement yeah. about who you are. And if you're upset about something, you just burn or you scratch or you cut or whatever. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think for at least 10 years, um, self-harm, that kind of self-harm, has not been diagnostic for borderline personality. Yeah. Up to 30% of 15-year-olds self-harm. It's massive. It's a huge figure. Self-harm as in cut or burn. Yeah, yeah. It's a really high figure. But for the vast majority of those people, by the time they're 21, they've stopped, you know? But in borderline personality disorder, obviously that continues on. And it gets worse. And it gets worse. And they do different things. Yeah. yeah. Are there different patterns of self-harm, say, between borderline personality disorder and... Bipolar disorder, or I mean, I think um, yeah, I think it's imp yeah important to recognise that self harm doesn't necessarily mean borderline. Yeah, so it might mean you know it's a cultural yeah. norm if you're a teen, or you know bipolar patients can self harm as well. Um, so I mean, sometimes I've heard you know hyper hypomanic patients that just have this sort of pent up energy An that might they'll do it as a sort of self regulation. Um, attempt uh, or you know depressed bipolar patients might also self-harm so it's not I think if someone turns up with um, lacerations on their wrists um, it doesn't necessarily mean borderline I think it's important to think about all the other factors which we've discussed which is you know is there family history of bipolar disorder is this a completely new thing and they've got all these depressive symptoms or is it an enduring thing um, and look at all these other factors because um, it may well be that um, they, they have a, a mood disorder and, a, and it's not a borderline personality disorder. Any questions yeah. there? I might ask a question. Thinking about prognosis, um, how would we compare the outlook long term for people with bipolar disorder versus people with borderline personality disorder? I think the prognosis for bipolar disorder is quite poor, isn't it? And tends to get worse over time, whereas borderline personality disorder, if you see people who've still got it at 40, then it's quite bad. You know, like, there seems to be... You know, there's some research that says that um, uh, even untreated... You know, I can't remember what the percentage was, but it was a really high percentage of people... If you, if you assess people as having borderline personality disorder and you follow them up, I think it was six years later, you know, a whole bunch of people who are untreated don't meet the diagnosis for borderline personality. I think the research says that, that if you're going to kill yourself when you put, it's probably going to be before 40. I wasn't thinking of killing mm. yourself. I was thinking yeah. about alcohol and drugs right. and, mm. you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. I would just say with the bipolar disorder, um, I'd be a bit more optimistic about the prognosis. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, there's some rule of thirds, you know, that a third will recover after, you know, one or two episodes, a third will, and not have further episodes, a third will continue to have episodes but be stable and a third will have a poorer prognosis, they'll get worse, more severe episodes. And um, I guess one key thing is the fewer mood episodes that, that you have, the better the prognosis. Every time a patient has a manic or a depressive episode, it does damage to the brain uh, and in the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, there's evidence of cognitive impairment. 
Um, and there's a lot more research coming out about that. It used to be thought, you know, just schizophrenia, there was cognitive impairment. It's in bi at least definitely bipolar one, um, there's cognitive impairment and there's an uh, increased risk of de developing dementia in bipolar patients. It depends on the, the number of mood episodes. So I think it's important to get the diagnosis early and then for the patient to kind of, you know, accept that they've got a mental illness and, you know, a medication like a mood stabiliser is probably going to be essential. Uh, and sometimes I've sold it to patients that it's the, you know, every mood episode that they have you know, it, it is going to be doing damage and then they might have cognitive impairment down the track, you know, it's a good reason to take, take this, with him. But this cognitive impairment yeah. with multiple episodes is true of unipolar depression as well, yeah. isn't it? You know, the more episodes you have, the more likely and the more severe your cognitive yeah. impairment's going to be, so... Yeah, no, it's a, it's a real uh, issue in addition to the, the mood episodes themselves. Usually, actually, I, I sort of say, if I have to see a borderline patient, I'll often say, it's actually, compared to bipolar disorder, it's probably a preferable diagnosis to have in the sense that yeah. the prognosis is better. Yeah. You know, over time, your symptoms will improve. You'll get better. Whereas bipolar disorder is a lifelong condition and will require lifelong treatment. Yeah. I, I guess that's the real difficulty and, you know, you, you're back again, back in hospital with another episode and it's a, you go around in circles, yeah. And the other thing I might start with you, Jan, the term borderline personality, a lot of clinicians are reluctant mm. to use that term. Should we be using that term? Is it a useful term for patients to hear? Well, I, it depends how informed the patient is. At the same time, it's also not a good label to have if your insurance company is looking at your medical records, for example, no, there is bipolar for that matter. Um, I think there's a bit of a trend, isn't there, to call it chronic PTSD or... or complex PTSD. Com complex PTSD, yeah. Um, and maybe that's a useful thing to do, to use that terminology. Um, I'm not so sure because I think it emphasises the trauma and I'm not sure that that's always mm. where the emphasis should be. Mm. But, that, but that's, a, that's a theoretical discussion. I, you know, I, I really strongly believe that uh, borderline personality disorder is best seen as an emotion regulation problem and a skills deficit, mm. you know, and, and I, I'm concerned with that complex PTSD thing because I think it'll change the focus of treatment. Onto blame. And, yeah, and, and it'll become about your history and not about now. But I, but I think that's a different sort of argument. I mean, it's such an old term, you know, like it originally referred to the, you know, the borderline between the psychotic and the neurotic patient. You know, it's a very old term and, and it's very hard. I mean, I find it very difficult to say to someone, you've got a personality disorder. You know, like it's, you know, it's a great thing to say to someone, isn't it? You know, you are at your core. And so... Um, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing as well because I think we try to tell people that you're not your disorder, but then we say you've got a personality disorder. So, um, so I, I, I struggle with it, but I agree with Jan that there are definitely some people who actually really find it very helpful to be able to just put a framework and a name around, about, around what's happening to them. So we're going to finish up on that note of optimism and hope for the future. And please join me in thanking our wonderful expert panel who shared tremendous insights. Thank you for listening to the Black Dog Institute podcast series. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to the series on iTunes, Google Play, or as a direct download from our website. 
If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au. 